0: This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
1: Welcome back to a special late-night, all-time iconic episode of What Matters Most. This wonderful guest has been involved in social justice for multiple decades, and it's some of history's biggest crossroads. Also happens to be one of three people that were in arguably one of the most important musical acts of the last hundred years, and he has graciously agreed to come on our show. What an honor for me personally, because there's such a connection, to welcome to the family Mr. Peter Yarrow. Thank you, sir.
2: There you go. Thank you. And it's a mutual honor, and it's an honor... And in, in, in not, not in so much in in personal me 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 terms. It's in us 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 other, because we who are and have been in this struggle to try to make the world a more humane place are really need each other now. We're we're on the phone when uh, and we're talking now at a time when people, thank goodness, are that are listening and we think of this have an opportunity to share some thoughts.
1: The honor is,
2: is all ours.
1: Peter, what matters most right now? And to anybody who's
2: listening from this point on, I'm going to try to say the things that I think are most significant for us to think about, because these are precious moments to use the opportunity to, to say things that may be, uh, uh, provocative may be helpful because you know we we're living in the trenches of 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 an attempt that, in which we're standing on the shoulders of some extraordinary people who have fought to to create the kind of circumstance in America that uh, has has become unique, even though you know, the United States has desperate faults. It has been the castle on the hill, and we are threatened in many respects with uh, that the collapse of, of of the leadership that the United States was able to provide, as well as the example of that kind of success. So I want to lead off with just saying this, that I've, I've just watched the debate. We have just watched the debates, and I have to say, while I was looking on the stage, rather than discuss in my own heart or in my own head who is going to win and who will be Trump. I was saying, if these people who are on this stage who care with this passion, who are talking about issues as substance, yes, they're trying to climb on each other's backs to get a position to to increase their numbers, but essentially they're all really decent people. I mean, it's hard to read uh, Bloomberg because, you know, he, is, he, his, he speaks with his actions and his policies, with the exception of uh, a couple of exceptions. The, 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 of course, the stop and frisk was, became the signal reality of the kind of uh, movement towards a greater amount of manifestation of racism in the criminal justice system and the, and the, and the police and and targeted. Yes. He's, he put more money, more muscle into anything, any than anybody into the anti-gun, uh, uh, gun violence effort. He's with, uh, every town and, and he is, his, his commitment to, to, uh, combat climate change systemically. It's been extraordinary. Yeah, he's not a charismatic guy, but that doesn't matter in one sense that I'm talking about. This is the one point I want to make. Every one of those people is a decent human being. Every one of those people has a moral center. Every one of those people... And 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 the issues that they're talking about are are critical for the United States to, to try to reconstruct its, its heart and its humanity. So I was more engaged ultimately in the sense that we are, uh, are seeing before us at, at least a very intense dialogue that is alerting people to the severity of the challenges we're facing and the severity of the challenges that we're trying to face. And specifically one of them is the ethical heart of America. And there, there is one issue that's very, we not explored in any depth, but it is emblematic. It is, and it was alluded to certainly uh, by both Bernie and by Amy Klobuchar, that we have a nation that is has the the wonderful reality that a magic occurred when people from all over the world came here to seek a more just and humane kind of existence because uh, they were persecuted for one reason or another, or because there there was famine, or because there was war. And we have embraced that history until now, and right now we have a, a, a moment of importance that's going on right near uh, where you're you're hearing the, for, uh, this broadcast, which is right down in Tijuana, right on the on the west of, of the United States and in Mexico, where there's. There's a chance to, to 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 take the bull by the horns and say each of us cannot solve the world's problems, but each of us can do what we can do in 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 the world of Jewishness. It's it's the concept of tikkun olam. It's not up to us. To try individually to arrogate ourselves to ourselves the task of fixing the world or healing the world, but we must not fail to do what we can. And if we do that, we we are sacred. We are living this the the, the sacred dictates not just of Judaism but all of, of, of the moral centered kind of uh, aspects of of all faith that is seeking uh, for a, a, a moral place to live. And so when people say, what can I do? I can't do anything. There are a lot of things that we, if we don't do it, we become submerged in do something. If we don't do something, and I will talk about what those things are, and we will discuss them. And then I'll, I'll finish this in a second. If we don't do that, we become submerged in the muck and the mire of confusion and the inability to see our own souls because we're not. We're a bystander to an atrocity, which is the dec- decimation of, of of the essence of the heart and the ethic of the United States. And, and all of this comes out of a place, because I've just watched the debate, so I'm internally, <laughs> I'm on the stage with those people thinking about it. So that, I just, for those of you who are listening to us, that's a that's a good start, you know, to talk, because we're going to schmooze a bit.
1: That is a profound start, and I want to say, one, it was very eloquent, it was on point, and you spoke of it. It's an honor for us to talk, but I want to tie this in, too, because we do stand on shoulders, that it's, it's our responsibility. You and I come from Ukrainian ancestors, literally from Odessa, both of us. And those people, my ancestors, traveled across that country, it took a couple of years with horse and wagons, fleeing pogroms, got on a boat, showed up at Ellis Island, and wanted to create a better world. We are all immigrants unless we are Native Americans. And what you said about if we don't do something And we had Rabbi Lerner Lerner talking about that beautiful concept that you talked about. If we don't do something, we fall into apathy, hopelessness, and we we begin to die, as your friend Martin Luther King says, the day we stop standing up and speaking for what's really important to us. So I think you really hit a deep core thread here with that.
2: Yeah, well, we are from the same... Um, prob- we're probably related, you know, because these shtetls w- were not allowed. <laughs> they didn't get to intermarry with uh, a heck of a lot of people, so you know there was there's a lot of uh, a genetic craziness going on in our backgrounds, where people you know you had a limited pool, and that person was the third cousin of that person who happened to be the the the, <laughs> the the grandson of the person that you know, etc. So yeah, um, no, we are. Cut from uh, the same cloth in that regard, and uh, let 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 me let me propose the following: If you say I'm confused, I'm troubled, I'm worried, and I don't know how I can do anything, then you are in the same position that I am in. You know, if I if if I am. You know, but that doesn't mean we all have the same arenas. Uh, let, me, let me make a point and give you the bottom line We're in a very short, uh, as I see it, you know, very short uh, vignette. This is not the whole story, but it is a critical reality. We have a circumstance in which we know from climate science that there is going to be an extraordinary change. Whatever we do, an extraordinary change in the not-too-distant future it could be really, really hitting us hard in seven years, eight years, five years, 12 years. But we know from our immediate experience that the people who have taken control of countries throughout Europe and the Middle East who are strong men and are to one degree or another emulative of our our own president who have aspirations of a kind of a dictatorial bent, if not the classic dictatorial tyrannical bent. We know that... We look around and say, wait, 10 years ago, did we have that as the dominant dynamic in these countries? No. And the reason, you say, well, then why did it change? And how does that have to, what does that have to do with what I'm going to do to save the world in my own little way?
1: Tragically, it's the politics of fear and through that uh, sense of handing one's power over in an effort to feel safe.
2: The point is that what has really empowered people to step up and say, just as Donald Trump said, give me the power and I'll keep these people out. Give me the power and I'll build the wall you know, to, between the United States and uh, Mexico. Give me the power and the people that you are afraid of and I'm going to make you more and more afraid of because that secures my power to keep them out. And the sowing of that kind of fear, in conjunction with the resultant uh, hatred, is the Nazi playbook. That's how, how, how it was done. Plus uh, this, uh, the, the, the capacity to keep information that is true from people. You remember in, in uh, Syria, Saddam Hussein declared victory. Why do they know? Yeah, we're victorious. There, there was no truth there. So, no... so if you can control the information, any lie that you want to propagate, any perspective that you want to pro you look at Kim Jong Un. The people love him, do they? Because they virtually don't have any information to contradict the 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 idea that this is what they want this is everybody's form in the meantime we have the boulongs and they 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 they, they, they you oppose the state they not only take you they take your parents grandparents and children and they're forever gone into this uh, deep hole and that's where they die you say well what 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 is what, what is precipitating that the migrations due to conflict—that's what happened when when the United States went into Syria and then we destabilized the area. Not certainly not our intention, uh, presumably, but uh, it, it established hegemony and control uh, over uh, economic forces, oil, whatever you want to call it. I don't know, or 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 simply a sense of. You know, that tradition in America that has propelled us in that direction in the past. But what happened was we got, you know, several million uh, refugees, actually tens of millions. In eight years, no matter what else is going to be happening, let's say it's ten or six, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. And what will that do? It will create a... A world in which we have Kim Jong Un's and we have Donald Trump's and we have, uh, you know, the uh, what's his name in in um, in the Philippines and uh, the Tataric. You have we're going to have a situation where it's a kind of horror, horrific science fiction novel and and a horror, a, a, just a horror show realised. So you say, what, what can we do to stop that? Forget about everything else. It's that we're the only problem in the world. The one thing we can do is find a way to have some kind of unanimity of awakening. The emperor has no clothes. If we don't stand together, if we don't help each other, if we don't share what it is that we have, we will perish. Together, because we will be at each other's throats and we will not be able to say, We're being forced into a situation. Do you want to die or share? Do we want to live in a world that is ruled by, by fear or a world that is ruled by love? If you choose love, then here is how, what you can do every day.
1: We can choose to love now, we can remember who we are and choose to love.
2: Remember that every act of generosity, every concern outside of your own feeding your own ego or your own materialistic desires, or even your own stomach, every one of those impulses is what's going to save the world and nothing else. So you can, your goodness quotient, my goodness quotient on the stage when I sing, which will be the case, you know, in the concert's coming up. And I have one in San Diego, which is a benefit for an extraordinary group that has emerged in the past year. And I'll be up in Freight and Salvage with, just singing with Noel old Paul Stuckey. And never have I felt that my vote, which is sung, and which is comes from my history of bringing the impulses of the years with Peter Paul and Mary has been more important. And never have I felt that people feel more clearly that it is by embracing each other that we will find the answer than when I hear people singing together, and something gets reawakened in them, and they say, "Oh, here's my goodwill hunting moment." You mean we still are here? We still care. We feel thats what we need to do. I don't say that singing is the only way. There are many other ways to do it. But singing is a damn good one, and we learned our lesson well from the beat seekers and the Woody Guthries and the weavers, etc., who blazed this path. But in any way that you can be a peacemaker, a person who cares—I—I I went across the the border to sing in a shelter called Casa Migrante in Tijuana, which serves since 1994. It's a priest started 1994. The neediest of the neediest of those who are seeking refuge. And I have wonderful pictures. I'll send them to you, by the way, on the uh, after we're off the phone, because I want to share them with you. I'm not just talking to you, audience. I'm talking to my brother over here from New ukraine So I want you, I want you to know that, that it, You can see in those pictures, you can see those moments, a little tiny miracle where I was able to say, We don't hate you. We love you. You are we. You are, I, I said to them, I ne- wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be alive unless the United States had accepted my mother and father at Ellis Island. When my mother's name, who was turned into Bert, was Bortakov. When my father's name, who was Yaroshevich, was turned into Yara, and you, I am you. I, you, our country is you. Our country is not itself alone. It is all of you who are seeking. What what our Statue of Liberty says? Basically, we are we are the refuge. This is the refuge. Come find refuge.
1: Peter, what happens to us if we lose that as our soul of the nation? What happens if we somehow let that slip away?
2: If we lose that, it's because we haven't loved each other enough. And in order to love each other enough, it is up to each of us to call ourselves out in the ways that we fail to to reach out in that way. And and frankly, if you say, oh, I'm too tired or I'm not going to do anything, you know what? The moment you start doing it, you feel a lot better about the world situation because you're not you're not standing by while somebody's getting beaten up. You're not a by setter. You are saying, No, I am not gonna participate in this. Will you participate in it by remaining silent? You might say, Well, you know, I don't want to be that good. You know, the question is, do you want to be that happy? Do you want to be that inspired? Do you wanna be that filled with a sense that you have meaning, that you are you have integrity? Do you want to Go to sleep at night, feeling I've done something. I am not simply a consumer of 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 of, uh, of material on the net or uh, or or objects or yet if you don't have that other thing in your life, number one you're not, you're not getting the gift of life in a lot of ways, and the most important thing that I'm trying to say is that's the way you can help the situation, simply by being there, and your generosity, and your caring about other people, as it's manifested, will ennoble you, will strengthen you, will make you feel great, and by doing that together, that's how we will overcome, and that's essentially the way the civil rights movement evolved. That's what Martin Luther King preached, and that's, that's the stuff he got from, uh, from Gandhi. You know that that was an extraordinary, uh, an impossible thing to do for India to become independent of the the British uh, hegemony in that area, and it was done not with guns. And that was said on the debate tonight. If you, it, it's not something you can do with guns. We cannot solve this uh, this terrible threat that we face with guns. We can only solve it with, you could say love, but if that uh, it offends you because it's too corny, by c- caring about each other, by bonding with each other, by d- disabusing ourselves of the notion that we have to hate each other if we voted differently. You can go ahead and vote for Trump. I don't hate you for that. I, I You are you. You may have a different way of thinking how you can get to where we're trying to go, and I respect that. What I cannot respect and cannot confidence is you're hating me because I believe what I believe in. And I don't hate you for believing. I can think you drank the the Kool-Aid. I can think that you're... um, uh, psychotic, <laughs> you, know, I'm, you know, I I mean, if you're Charles Manson, I'm not going to applaud your methodologies.
1: And you have repeatedly done it through the power of music, like songs like The Cruel War, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, If I Had a Hammer, and on and on. Music has moved people, especially when it's live at these activist events.
2: Look, I, I wrote a, a song that, uh, based upon the um, Dalai Lama's poem. And then I was asked to do that by the Japanese world of music. And then I presented it to the Dalai Lama and we were in Tokyo. It was quite powerful and I've got (laughs) wonderful memories. What happened was I got on the stage and uh, very deliberately they had not told him I was doing this. As I was hearing him talk, he was saying, I am no longer his holiness. I am a simple country priest, and I don't want you to call me your holiness. I I am, I am you. I am with you, but I'm not your holiness. Well, of course, I was going to call him, get on stage when I was to meet him, shortly thereafter, your holiness. But no. So I got on the stage, I bound it up with my, my intuitive, you know, Whatever it is that has guided me through my through these years, and I said, "My brother," and he looked at me. He said, "My brother, let's rub noses. You don't make this stuff up." And we rub noses, which I've never done with anybody, and it's it was it was very interesting because you're getting very intimate with somebody you don't know. Right when he said, "Okay, now let's touch foreheads," and we touched foreheads, and that's when I felt his whole body. Coming through me, and then, 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 then we—he uh, put a uh, a silk scarf that he blessed around my neck, and we sat and we talked. And here is here are the lyrics to the song. It says, "Never give up, no matter the pain and sorrow. Never give up, you'll find your tomorrow. Compassionate heart." It will lead you, your loving heart. It will, it will, uh, it will something new to never give up. Love everyone, love all strangers, love even your enemy. Love everyone and everyone will join you to work for peace, to work for
0: peace.
2: Never give up. So that's what he's saying. Now, I had to write lyric, uh, music to these lyrics. I had to assign myself this task. But you can't write something honestly unless you understand it. And how can I say honestly, love everyone, love all strangers, love even... How can you love your enemy? And I came to an understanding of what he was talking about. And I think that's part of what has, has given me a bit of enlightenment about this because I was had organized a benefit for the town of Newtown after the Sandy Hook killing. It was not a concert to, it was at their request, not a concert to raise money. They didn't need money. What they wanted was a concert to come together and, and, and pour their grief out and hold each other. and proclaimed the Sandy Hook promise, which was, our hearts are broken, but our spirits are not. And they said, we will not be remembered for the tragedy and the blood that was uh, shed here. We want to be remembered as the genesis of a solution. In other words, they, they wanted the dignity of building from out of this tragedy the the love that it would take to to change this horrible thing and uh, Francine Wheeler who I'm singing within another month and a half was part of a group called the uh, she was a terrific singer she and her husband David Wheeler lost Ben in the the Sandy Hook shooting and uh, I I had met her and sung with her at the Flagpole Cafe. Which is a broadcast radio show, but it's live, and she's a great singer. So, I saw her again, and she said, "I don't, I don't want to live," and you know, and, and that was that, you know. And she, and I went over because she was going to be, um, part of the Flagpole Cafe, which I'll be performing with again. And I went over and I said, Francine. I just want your opinion on which songs are the right ones to sing at this gathering. And I started singing, you know, uh, We Shall Overcome, started singing, Don't Laugh At Me, I started singing. And at a certain point, for the first time since the death of her son, who was six years old then, she started singing with me. And by the end of the night, she said, okay, I will come on stage. Then, after we did this concert, and a few days before I realized it needed, it was going to be historic, so I got uh, 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 a bunch of students who were staying with Jim Brown, who is an amazing documentary filmmaker, and who has done the last few Peter Poe and Mary uh, PBS specials, and he's a great friend, and I had about 12 of his students with cameras. And none of them synced up. It was a mess. But we had the footage. And then I brought it to Bill Moyers of, of the song that she sang where the audience, their, their, their pain and their love overflowed. And it was uh, an extraordinary song. And she sang it with Dar Williams. And Judith Moyers, Bill's wife, said, we, 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 we've got to do this. And Bill said, I've, I've got to interview uh, you and Francine and David, her husband. And we did that. And out of that, we made a PBS special where you see her on camera saying, I didn't want to live. Then she formed uh, something called Ben's Lighthouse. And she realized, she came to the conclusion by trying to help others who were suffering through this agony, that she could restore herself to 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 want to live and, and to, to heal in some ways and other ways never. In that concert that I was doing, I had the epiphany whereby I was looking at these people and I was thinking of Adam Lanza, who was the shooter. And instead of seeing him as a preacher that I wanted to, to throttle, to kill, to, to name, to whatever, I saw a miserable, totally destroyed Spirit, and human being. It was uh, you know, metaphorical. I didn't see a physical creature. And I said to myself, "My God, what suffering!" And the moment I said that, the moment I said that, I realized that I had uh, found a way to sing that line: "Love even your enemy," because if you can, as as one Luther King King said. When they come to you and they beat you, when you're sitting on the stools and, and you're, 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 you know, you're in, the, in the lunch counter, and you're, and you're bloody and you're boner broken, love them. What the heck is he talking about? What is that crazy? Well, I got it. Love not what they've done, but love them in the sense of knowing that they are wretched, in creatures preachers who are doing something that is unspeakable, and that there is something inside them that is broken, and that there is a place for some kind of empathy for an Adam Lanzler. It's hard to imagine, you know, come in, let's, hello Hitler, sit down in my chair, yes, I have my degree in psychology, I'd like to ask you two questions, so I can empathize with you. No, I'm not, being an idiot. This is the kind of thing that goes way beyond the the the, the literal. It's all uh, metaphorical, metaphysical, and and those are the transcendent moments where all of a sudden your soul is touched, and you say, "Yes, I understand. It is within this the domain of this kind of sensibility and awareness that I can be." The instrument of good and it is precisely in this way that I am saying to you in your own way when you can get outside yourself and you can somehow grapple with the idea that love and and selfishness and generosity and caring for one another is the gift of life that we have, and it is what is going to save us from this situation, but that the alternative is a world governed by fear. And so what we have to work towards is a world governed by love. And every little thing that you do, whether you're taking care of your grandmother or you're living with your parents for your rather than just saying, I, you know, I have too many things to do, and you know that you're giving up a hell of a lot to do that, you know, to, to to be there for a year. For my my wife was for ten years with her parents to help them transition from, you know, to to go from the world we know to the world we can only speculate about. This is the essence of life, and I can only promise you that this is what. And believe me, I've experienced a lot of very exciting, wonderful things that have been very successful, as you know. And and with that has come some creature comforts. But there's nothing, nothing that can even remotely compare to the rewards of feeling that sense that one is not, you're not alone. That your heart is bound to other human beings with a sense of service and love. And... How you get there, I don't know. But I know that it starts with the awareness that that possibility exists. And my hope is that by talking about it in very personal ways, it might be just one little sliver of information that might help one person. You know, I have one story to tell you about that I always say. If this is the only thing I had achieved in my life with all my singing and all my songwriting and all my touring and all the records and everything, Diana it would have been enough. It was a time when I, uh, I after the war was over, the Vietnamese war, and uh, I'd written a song called The Great Mandela, and it was, and I, I could give you a lot more information about it, but it is about somebody who tells his father he cannot kill another, he will not go to war, and his father says. You know, look, he thinks he's better than his brother that died. You know, what the hell does he think he's doing to his father, who brought him upright? And then says, Take your place on the great mandala as you move through this brief your brief moment of time. Win or lose, now you must choose now. And if you lose, you're only losing your life, and that is where we are. Well, ultimately, what he does is he—he he goes to jail. He's, you know, he, rather than go to war, you know, he's he's sent to jail, which thousands and thousands of people did at the time. And in jail, he goes on a hunger strike, and, and he, and because he said. I'm going to fast until the killing ends, and he dies. And the people, and, and then another verse, and you say, take your place on the great man. And in the end, uh, the the lyrics say, tell the jailer, or tell, tell the people that they're safe now. Hunger stopped him. He lies still in his cell. Death has gagged his accusations. We are free now. We, we, we can kill now. We can hate now. Now we can end the world. And all of a sudden, you realize that the trajectory of that hatred is the destruction of the world. And what I'm essentially saying in this song, this song is take your place. Be a bystander to evil, or stand up, in this case, going to jail. Well, so I went to a television station to be interviewed. When it was finished, the Interviewer came to me and she said, I want to talk to you about something that's personal. Can we talk after the interview? And we did. And she said, My boyfriend, at the time that he was conscripted, he was drafted, had been listening to the great Mandela. And he went before the judge. And, he, and the judge said, It asked him, you know, do you have a history of conscientious objection in your. And your religion, in your life? And he said, no, Your Honor. Can you th- tell me anything that would uh, prevent me from doing what I am legally bound to do, which is to send you to jail, to convince me that there's a legitimate legitimacy to your request that I can honor? And he said, Your Honor, m- if it's all right, may I sing you a song? And he sang that song, The Great Mandela. And the judge said, I'm granting you conscientious, objective status. And if I have done nothing else in my life, I've said this on stage and I've said it to myself. You know, that one thing, that one thing makes everything worthwhile. And it's not something that... If it, nobody's going to know about this. This is not the number of records I've sold or the number of hits that have been made by Peter Polinari. It's not marching in the March on Washington. It's not singing for the queen of England. It's not, it's none of those. It's one human being. And it said in Judaism, and this was in my blood, even though it wasn't something that it was, I was studied, you know, because my mother came here at the age of three from, from the Ukraine. And, uh, the family said we are Americans now, and we et done etc etc so I grew up in something called ethical culture and I wasn't environmental but I for a variety of reason uh, because my mother remarried the executive director of central synagogue I was confirmed but the point is that there is something in my blood in my impulses in my culture that says we are ennobled when we do, we give. That's what we're here to do. And in giving, we receive the greatest gifts. So that's, that's my, you know, my rant. And why am I ranting like this? Because in the conversations I've had for my brother from Ukraine, who is laughing on the other side of the, the microphone, I know that I'm here with a, with a, 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 a spirit that resonates with my own, and that what I am saying is probably said by him in many, many ways, and that if we hear it enough from each other, in music, and in word, and in drama, and in painting, and in film, and in dance, that that, that there's something that strikes us that can be, uh, can be ennobling, and uh, so... What have we wound up doing? We've we've had this little, uh, you know, uh, this is this is no longer a conversation on the radio. You've come into this synagogue, and you're a little bit more Jewish now. <laughs> That's it.
1: <laughs> I have said these things in different ways, but what's so beautifully metaphysical here? is when I hear you, I'll think of something I might want to ask you about, or I might go to. And our spirits in this moment are so linked, a spiritual hard drives so connected, that you then are just answering it. And I'm, a, I'm having an experiment on this side, and we're both participating in it, where if I'm just intending or wondering about something, or even a person, you're doing it. Now, there's no scientific way to prove it, if I had written these down and you know, people here are looking at it and going, this is phenomenal, there's no reason to make it up. And the incredible ties between us are, are, are really taking my breaths away. I have very dear friends who lost their daughter at Sandy Hook. I don't mention her name on the air, but they were there, and they have talked about that concert. They were there with you and how profoundly that changed and what you're talking about love and everybody from Gandhi, who handed it to King and Mandela and on and on, and now the Dalai Lama. I see this beautiful legacy, and you're giving us and reiterating an eternal blueprint that I believe lies within us and waits for the sweet water of your words or songs or somebody else's and a little sunshine from grace to come alive, because we can each love It's free. We don't need to join anything, sign up for anything, pay anything. We can each love in our own beautiful way. Not everybody's going to write Puff the Magic Dragon or Cruel War or endless other beautiful songs that take your breath away or what Woody had done. But we we can be our voice in the choir, our instrument in the symphony, this eternal universal symphony. And what I admire in you is that after all these years, in all these breaths, you're still more inspired, more vital, more relevant than ever because you care and because you love.
2: And because I'm able to turn that love into more than a feeling. I'm able to live love. And if you ask about love, you who are listening, love my mother, who's a school teacher in New York City, for, most of her career, high school teacher in English speech and drama, used to say, love is not a feeling. Okay, it's a feeling. Love is a verb. If you don't act on it, it's only half of what love is. You've got to act on it. And when you do, it's like a redemption. It's like a, 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 a coming alive. It's a birth. It's a, it's a resolution. It's a goal. It's a goal. It's a moment. Of, uh, of of real existence, and that's uh, you, I, I promise you. If you ask the person who won the race, or the person who saw that the the there was somebody who was competing with him or her, who hurt him or herself, and they went back to get them and finished together, who is more blessed? I promise you, it's the
1: latter. Peter, can I ask you how much you being at the I Have a Dream speech at the Washington Monument, August of 1963, you, Mary and Paul sang a beautiful song called Blown in the Wind by an almost then unknown Bob Dylan, how and hearing his words in person up close, because I still listen to that speech to this day often to re-energize, ignite and give me hope and energy to move. You were there. Did that have a profound impact on the young Peter? Did it change you?
2: Oh, it, was, it was transformational for all three of us. We never looked back. It's what made us
1: believe,
2: most importantly, that ordinary people, when they stood together, had such a cumulative power. We had a quarter of a million people there, yes, and they knew we'd a hammer, and they knew blowing in the wind, and they say it was. It made us know with the surety that if we could stand together as human beings, not as elected leaders or, or rich and powerful people, we could change the course of history, which is exactly what that movement did. And, and it spawned the, the, the empowerment of other movements in ways that never would have existed had it not uh, run its course the way it did. I mean, out of that came the empowerment that was needed to pursue the women's movement, the, the anti-war movement, the peace movement, the, the anti-apartheid movement, the climate movement, you name the movement. That was the mother. And we knew it. Mary took my hand. She said, Peter, when we are hearing the speech, we are, we are watching history being made. She was right on. It was transformation. There's nothing that we experienced together that was more powerful or transformational, in in that sense. Now we had other extraordinary experiences together. When we were in Central America and we were leaving uh, uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua, we had a press conference, and I remember all three of us speaking at the end about what we were feeling and, and from these two visits. That was then the when the CIA was mining the harbors of, of, of Nicaragua and paying the mercenaries called the Condra in Nicaragua to, uh, you know, um, overcome the Sa- Sandinistas. And that was when in, 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 uh, in El Salvador, where people were refused uh, sanctuary in the United States because we were supporting the government of Duarte that was killing them. And uh, Obus, Song and the death squads to the tune of, you know, what would be equivalent to, you know, uh, uh, $50 million a day today. So, of course, if we're supporting the government, then we're not going to say people who say, I I have, I have to seek refuge because the government that you're supporting it wants is going to kill me. And indeed, they die. So anyhow, we were in this press conference and all three of us, and it's the one thing that I... I'm sorry, is not on tape. We we just took our. We just got totally spiritually naked and stood there, and each of us wept and spoke about what we had seen and how we felt, and that that was that was that was an extraordinary experience. You know, I mean to to be able to do that and and pour out.
1: Just a quick moment here to remind you that we are 100% listener supported. So if you go to patreon.com backslash what matters most, you can contribute any size you wish from $5 a month to $100 a month. So if you love the show, if you want to see us do more, support us in any way. Your contribution matters. Much love. Now back to our fantastic guest. Peter, that's an incredible recollection of history at the Washington Memorial Monument for the I Have a Dream and also in El Salvador. Do you have any cool lyrics or poems or songs you want to share with the worldwide audience that maybe are not as well known as some of the super popular stuff?
2: I'm going to read you one lyric that nobody knows about, that because it's I wrote it in the Negev Desert with 40 other uh, artists. A lot of them were uh, either Israeli or Palestinian, but they were from France. They were from all over the world, and we had gathered there to write songs and create dances and uh, create art, uh, you know, for peace. And I wrote this song. I had a group of people sitting around me, and I said, "Okay, we're going to write this song." And I'll tell you the part that I did not write, and you'll understand, because that became the the real title of the song. And it really it was quite quite uh, a moment. Uh, and Seeds of Peace, for those of you who don't know, is an extraordinary organization. It uh, has put, put Palestinian and Israeli students together for uh, many uh, for decades now to um, get to know each other. In I think it's in Maine or yeah, it's in Maine. In a, a summer camp situation, they start out as frightened and untrusting as they end up loving and adoring each other. And then they go back, and some of them slip back into the reality of of, of the previous fears and but a lot do not. So uh, here, is, uh, here is what I, I wrote. I wrote there in the negative. <laughs> it's so incredible. I'm just going to read I'm not going to sing it because I don't have the guitar and everything, but I'll, I'll give it to you. Why do I fear you? Why do I hate you? Why do I love you? Why? What if I were to tell you my story? What if I were to tell you my fears? What if I were to open my heart to you? What if I were to show you my tears? Why did I build a wall to prevent you from loving or knowing or touching my soul? Why didn't I trust you to be real and human and let trust and friendship and healing unfold? The blood of our fathers, the blood of our mothers is choking our future. We drown in our past. The courage to cut off the chains that have bound us. Must we kill each other to be free at last? Can you forgive me? Can I forgive you? Can we ever stop fighting and sing the same song? Can you forgive me? Can I forgive you? Can we meet in the field? out beyond right and wrong. Can we forgive each other and sing the same song? How I have hurt you, how I've abused you, and denied all the suffering that I have caused you. I stand here before you ashamed, I implore you. Let's build life anew, bring this hate to an end, find the trust in our hearts to start over again. Can you forgive me, can I forgive you? Can we ever stop fighting and sing the same song? Can you forgive me? Can I forgive you? Can we meet in the field out beyond right and wrong? Can we forgive each other and sing the same song? And of course that quote is from Rumi. You know, the the, the and you know, and I didn't come up with that. Somebody said, Well, what about Rumi? What about Rumi? So that I didn't write that. Somebody else said, No, you gotta include that, and that's where it was. So, and the only reason I'm reading it, because it came to mind, because I was on the phone with a very dear friend of mine, who is one of the great organizers in America, and we were talking about what we've been doing, and our Jewishness, and our non-Jewishness, and our histories, and I said, well, let me read you this poem, and she was just, she said, that's it, Peter, you've got to send it to me, so
1: and to have it debut here i would love a copy of those words i'm going to print them out and put them up here on the big board for all of us that that is poetry and as you were reading it i thought it sounded sort of roomy or something mystical and then of course you beautifully take that and and weave it in what's it like obviously you wrote one of the most iconic songs ever with puff the magic dragon from a cornell student's poem which is genius and then had the integrity to find him and put him on it for half, unheard of integrity in the music business. But the song, I heard that song three or four days ago being played to a bunch of kids. I can't play it without crying. I can't sing it without choking up. What's that like to tap into something and to create something? What does that feel like for you to have been the steward, the divine steward, to bring that down here? and then, like Prometheus, sharing fire, share that gift of love, and to see six generations, seven or more, and that song will be singing when the sun evaporates the earth, or whatever happens before that. The, what was that like? What is that still like for you after all these years? What is? It's a tough question, I'm sure, to answer, but who else could I ask?
2: I have no idea. I have no idea why this, song hit the way it did. That's number one. Number two, what Lenny Lipton left uh, did not include uh, it was the beginning of of a song, but it didn't go to the place where it's a heartbreaker, where it says a dragon lives forever, but not so little girls and boys. Or it was only boys, but I'm now uh, degenerating. Painted wings and giant strings make way for it. The whole idea of, of of that, it was it wasn't that that we wrote. I, he wrote the the first lyric, and then I added the piece that was in my heart, to end and then I wrote the music. So if I had just, uh, I I say in the in the case of the of the Dalai Lama song, you know, I wrote about twelve words, and this one I can take credit for and feel good about the impulse to say, you know, it is a sad and painful day when our innocence, when we lose our innocence as human beings and we have to go into the world, real world. But we must because that, that if we don't, we are bystanders. If we don't, we are, we have not uh, uh, taken the instruction to, to do what we can in life, to live our lives. That's what we're here about. The interesting thing is that what I've come to conclude is that it is not, put it this way, it's not as simple as the song. If the song had been written by Lenny and me in whatever our contributions were, and recorded by any number of entities, I don't know if it would have had a chance of becoming memorable or hit or anything. The reality was a cumulative thrust of Peter Paul and Mary's personas together brought some kind of intangible but very present something out in all of us. And when you hear us singing this song, there is something that's not unfamiliar in Peter Paul and Mary's uh, music that characterized it and made it in certain ways, almost sacred for us. And that's why we stay together for all those years. Because if you don't feel you have something, a a, a mission to pursue, you're not gonna be able to stand the rigors of uh, of, a a, a trio being together that's ludicrous. People don't do that. It doesn't last. It doesn't because it takes too much to do it. But we believed in something. Essentially, what is that thing? It's what you hear in Mary's voice when she sings 500 Miles. What is it in, that, in her voice? Not in the King's voice, not in anybody else's, except now they can kind of uh, transmit Mary's uh, internal persona into their own and carry it on if they're feeling that. And they're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bringing it to Mary's, uh, to you via Mary. It's the same thing in and It's the same thing in the cruel war. It's the same thing in leaving on a jet plane. It is this hope, this plea for for love to to rule, for love to to uh, uh, to dominate rather than I'm saying rather than fear now, but just to dominate. Here's a lyric to another song that I wrote that it says. That kind of is illustrative of that message. But the point that I'm making before I tell you that lyric is that what we shared was not reducible to notes. When we sang "Blowing in the Wind," it was not reducible to melodic lines. It was not reduc. It was as much written in blood and roses and dashed lies and, and and cruelty observed and desperation over which was, uh, people triumphed. That's, that's the stuff of what we were able to bring to it. We sang Blowing in the Wind at the gravesite of Andrew Goodman. You know, once you've done that, it's a little different. Once you've sung it at the March on Washington, you're not singing a song. You're entering a sacred pace. Now, there's another song that I wrote, and then I have to sign off because we've been talking forever. Is, is it, it, and I, I might sing it, but there it says, lift us up. Make us, no, lift us up, make your stand, make our stand. Let love triumph in our land. Lift us up, make us strong. Give us courage to right the wrong. America, our hopes and dreams are truly all at stake. Let not the hate divide us. Let not our spirits break. Let not our courage falter. Let not our bravery fail. Let unity bring victory. Let love prevail. Lift us up. Make our stand. Let love triumph in our land.
1: Oh, bravo. And I do need to let you go, but I want to give a shout out to Linda Carroll, who with you founded the incredible foundation, One Story at a Time. We have a link on the page. I encourage everyone to look at it and support this work, and look at the concert series. Peter's going to be in some places around the country. Go out, see it, and say hi. It's important. Linda's an angel on earth, and I want to say thanks because she make, helped make this happen. Oh, she's wonderful.
2: She started this. She went down to Carolina, and she the flame got lit within her, and bam! She could, she was unstoppable. You know, it's, it's really extraordinary. So let me send you uh, this uh, the lyrics to this song and also send you a recording that I made moments after I did it. I went to sing it for a, a, somebody wanted to interview me and I didn't even know what the melody was for sure yet and I was uncertain, but I think you'll enjoy it. It's not for playing on the radio, it's for you. Okay?
1: Do you have any closing words of inspiration? For we have people all over the world who listen to this show in different countries. I can't believe the emails we get and they it's really right now you me and that person or that couple or that kid we have a lot of young people a lot of the climate change strikers and marchers uh, sometimes greta has liked one of our shows the great greta thunberg yeah because we've had the top climate scientists on You are a wise and gentle king. You are the voice of truth. You've seen a lot. You have a great legacy, and you still have a lot of years to come, God willing. But what what, would—yes, may it be true. And there you go. We need you here. You're not leaving yet. What words would you say to these folks listening around the world right now, you, me, and them?
2: Well, I just say that—just remember that that what you give in your life is— your opportunities that are a result to a large degree of how history has provided you a platform to live your life. It is, some of you will have extraordinary moments of, of uh, self-realization that are very private, and some of you will have a sense of those crucial moments in your life, when they're very public, Some of you will have uh, extraordinarily remunerative careers, and some of you will struggle desperately. You'll have sorrows, but you will have joys. But what will make your life meaningful and you meaningful in equal ways to anybody else in the world is not measured by the dimensions of the scope of your influence or the, the scope of your fame or the money that you're, is measured by a, a little moment like that one where I told you about uh, the fact that somebody had heard my song and sang it to a judge and didn't go to work. Those are, those are the most precious gems in our lives. Do not compare yourself to anybody. Just understand that if you can be in touch with what is truly in your heart that makes makes something happen in you that is extraordinary and amazing and sacred, that will be the same Martin Luther King in his speech. It's the same. It is inalienable. It is, And it's. I'll tell you, it's a corollary to the Jewish uh, instruction that it comes through the wisdom of the of the of the, of the great, you know, <laughs> Talmudic uh, Talmudic uh, scholars who debated everything from the man and the moon to the moon and the man. It's uh, that if you save one life, it's as if you saved all of humankind. The corollary to that is, if you fail to save a life that you might have saved, you have demolished the soul, to one degree or another, of all of humankind. But the positive corollary is if you help somebody, it is if you have helped all of humanity. If you love somebody, and that's quite literal. If you translate that from the hypothetical and the metaphysical and the analogous into a literal piece of business, your life will change before you, and you will take your place, and with with those who have had the great good fortune to find that out. And I, uh, I I think that the gravest challenge that faces America is not policy; it's not it's the the degradation of our of our empathy and our caring, it, it is, it, if we can restore that, we can restore, but without that, we will not. And, and so I say to you, and I've said this only a couple of times, that after singing Blowing in the Wind since, when did I hear it, 1962? All these years, everybody's saying, what, is, what does that mean, this the answer is Blowing in the Wind? What does that mean? Well, I know what the answer is now. The answer, my friend, is empathy and compassion, and love. If you answer the question, how many times must a man, how many ears must one man have before he can hear people cry? The answer is, is governed by the dimensions of empathy, compassion, and love. How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be preached? Same answer. So that's where I've come to. And those are my final words. And I rest my case, or other, and I'm closing my briefcase. A counselor, close your briefcase. You've made your case.
1: <laughs> and you have won? Yeah. <laughs> and empathy, compassion, and love is what makes us human, really, that you're living from those three qualities, and that's the best any of us can do. And in the end, when ashes turn to ashes and dust to dust, I respect you because you Lived it as a verb, completely, not as an abstract. You got it. Love,
2: and there it is, my last word. Love is not only a feeling.
1: Love is a vibe. It's a vibe, I tell you. A vibe. Go raise children. Have yourself a
2: go. A vibe. Have a have a have a little uh, potato latkes and sit and sing. Love is a vibe. A vibe, but not just a feeling. All right, my brother.
1: <laughs> get this man at tea alright I hope you'll come back and graze us with a part two it's someday in the fortune, in the future and I look forward to sitting again in the audience like I took my parents to their 30th Wednesday anniversary and we all cried and saw the three of you I look forward to seeing you again and supporting you completely
2: okay Tisky. I'm giving you a big hug
1: God bless you go in great love and light and may the road lift up you are a godsend, and it's an honor. Thank you.
2: You too, my brother. You too, my brother. Thank you. Puff,
0: the magic dragon, lived by the sea, and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanalee. Little Jackie Paper loved that rascal Puff and brought him strings and sealing wax and other fancy stuff. Oh, Puff the Magic Dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Hanali. Puff the Magic Dragon. In a land called Honolulu, Together they would travel On a boat with billowed sail Jackie kept a lookout Perched on puffs gigantic Giant's rings make way for other toys. One grey night it happened, Jackie Paper came no more. And puffed that mighty dragon, he ceased his fearless roar. His head was bent in sorrow, green scales fell like rain.